Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. And hey, oh my God, folks. Hey, 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 hey. There's so many people on the call. Um, we're, and then, and, you know, again, the chat is there. So folks should be totally chatting with one another um, and get your questions ready, get your comments ready. The whole point of tonight is, I mean, it's audience appreciation night. We're not really going to like be able to give anything away. We didn't really think that that far into this, um, but we appreciate you. <laughs> like a lot. We appreciate you so much, especially since, as you've heard us say time again on the show, it's kind of like a surprise uh, that this uh, podcast has been as successful as it has been for both of us. And so we really, really do appreciate you. And so cheers to you if you folks are joining us with a beverage to cheers with. Cheers. Cheers. And um, thanks for joining us tonight. I'm really looking forward to our discussion. So Nora... What the fuck is on your mind? We wanted to make sure that we started off, of course, with a very quick conversation about the news. And, um, you know, I think that we can all agree that the biggest injustice from this past week, uh, it's just, it's just breaking my heart. Um, that barbecue guy in Etobicoke couldn't sell his wings. Jesus. (laughs) the fuck what fucking hogwash right yeah like i i really am just so stunned by that uh the the way that the police are so obvious in the their differential treatment of folks who are white and folks uh who are not white even when they know they're on camera you know um you nor i can't remember if you were at that rally just before the g20 in uh in 2009 or 2010 uh that was a rally that was organized by no one is illegal in toronto and we were it was very small and we were marching on the sidewalk which i think is not a problem for anyone anywhere like i'm pretty sure you're allowed to walk on the sidewalk with other groups of people with other individuals i think that that's fine (laughs) and so we were walking on the sidewalk going to join a Tamil rally that was happening at the same time. And then the police kettled us on all sides <laughs> with horses. But we were on the sidewalk and there were babies uh, who were a part of the march and children. And so people were freaking out. And of course, so if you haven't been in a kettle before, what, what it is is like the police surround you. So they, sorry, they surrounded us on two sides, three sides, uh, because there was a fence on the other side. And so they, they surrounded us with uh, uh, horses on two sides and police on the on the, the lengthwise sides. And then they just started advancing in. But of course, there's no space to advance in. That's part of the, the issue with the kettle is that you get really nervous because you, you, you start getting closed in. And so people start falling and they keep advancing. And, you know, people are literally trying to escape underneath the legs of horses. And I'm just like, we weren't actually doing, we weren't breaking any rules, <laughs> nothing. And that was the way we were treated then. There was a BLM rally the night that um, Rob Ford died. And uh, it was really, really small. There were 30 people uh, sitting on the steps of, of uh, Nathan Phillips Square. It was late at night. It was like 11 p.m. And we were like just singing. And then the police came up with a giant busload of cops that they like there was probably two cops for every person who was at the rally <laughs> gotta run that and budget. then they also 
right? And then they also additionally had like another uh, set of police officers on horseback. And it was just like, you know, experiencing those types of things so often and then watching the arrest uh, of the Adamson barbecue guy who got to negotiate with police after a few days. And then also... Uh, you know, as he's being arrested, all of his buddies are like surrounding the police, like, let him go. Like that would never, ever happen at a BLM rally or at a rally that is uh, primarily uh, run by people who aren't white. It's, uh, you know, as we say, the economy, all that shit that people talk about during COVID, it's like really code for white supremacy. And you can see it like the proof is in the pudding. It really is. Well, and worse than that, this past week, of course, uh, the Ontario Provincial Police shot and killed a one-year-old, a baby. And the way that the Special Investigations Unit talked about this was that they said that a boy had been injured or not sure. And then the kind of formal report came out saying a boy had been killed. And then they're like, oh, and the boy was one years old. And it's just like, I don't know what world the SIU lives in, but like, I wouldn't call a one-year-old a boy. And, you know, someone online said, if parents are still counting the kid's age based on months, <laughs> they're like, they're not, they're not a kid, right? They're still a baby. And uh, I don't know how many of you folks saw the news other than what you saw on Twitter, but it, it didn't get covered. I, like, I'm actually a bit surprised. I'm rarely surprised when stuff doesn't get covered, but I was totally surprised. Yeah, a baby. They shot and killed a baby and it's not front page news across the country. I don't fucking understand. I don't understand. And I don't know if you saw the original um, report of when the SIU, uh, you know, put up their release and it said that the that the, the bullet that harms the baby may have come from elsewhere. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Like the sky. Where? Act of Else- God literal else fucking where like i'm just really confused about the way that they decided to communicate that issue to the public oh my god and uh it is just such a disastrous indictment of the way that the media works in this country to actually report news that um is of paramount importance to people like how could they not do that how could they not cover that? Yeah. Yeah. And the reaction, I mean, we, we had a bit of a Twitter back and forth with um, the Toronto Star's main political columnist, Martin Reg Cohn, uh, and because he thought that of all days to do this, two days after the OPP literally shoots and kills a baby, is to then criticize defunding the police for being, um, I, I believe the quote was, if you can't describe a campaign slogan in less than five minutes, it's a bad campaign slogan. And I just thought just that, like, that was a great How IQ much more test. to the point can you get? <laughs> can't. Defund, pretty common word, the... Don't know how you could be confused by that. Police. (laughs) But what are police? Do you mean also child services? Yeah, actually, let's have that discussion. It's stunning. And the way the way that he presented it was that he, you know, wanted to um, to 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 show people this advice that uh, this other person who had written, this other white guy who had written in uh, the Washington Post was was doling out uh, to black activists, like just some advice. First of all, you don't care about us. You don't write about us. You're not interested in giving us any advice whatsoever. And also like, because, you know, 
I'm the type of person where if I'm going to criticize someone, I'm just going to do a little research. I did some research last night into what Martin Reg, Reg, Riguga, Cone had written in the past about uh, racism. And it's not that surprising. Like going back every time he mentions Black Lives Matter or black people, it's about it's like some sort of critique. It was he wrote an article, he wrote an op-ed in 2016 saying um, that uh, BLM should understand that Pride has like a is a great organization that has um, a great mandate and BLM should like learn about what the mandate of Pride is instead of (laughs) asking for ransom from Pride. And it was just like, my dude, you don't even understand what's happening here. They like named us the honored group. Like, hello, hello, pay attention to what's happening. But did he mention Andrew Loku in that? Did he mention Andrew Loku? No. And that was at that time, the biggest campaign that we were trying to, to uh, bring forward to folks. He did not. Um, what was another one? Another one was, well, uh, he, he, um, his, his contribution to the question of, um, what should we do with statues that honor oh yeah, statues. racists? Right. And, and he was like, what? We can't be racist towards statues. They're really important. <laughs> so his column like defends the bronze honor. <laughs> and he also, the other time he writes about Black Lives Matter and racism is when he writes about when we were successful about getting cops out of the Toronto District School Board. And he wrote, man, like the TDSB shouldn't have folded to these like BLM activists. Uh, He doesn't mention the kids who had been handcuffed in their class. He doesn't mention um, the the children's um, uh, own testimony of how they have been harmed by police. None of that stuff. He says the TDSB uh, folded to us. And he also said that, uh, you know, if 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 children are not able to learn how to be comfortable around cops, in the schoolyard, how are they going to feel comfortable around cops when they encountered them on the on the dark when they encounter hardened cops on the dark streets of Toronto? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it, it that's, what? <laughs> that's the kind of logic that I mean. I guess we should really support bullying because if you've never dealt with a bully in your schoolyard, how are you going to deal with your boss? But also, I kind of want to ask him, how do you deal with the hardened cops who who approach you on the street, Martin? Did you learn at recess? Did you? Is that where you learned? Because otherwise, why are you expecting that from black children? Anyway, I wish I could have that conversation with him. But despite his um, his goal to uh, despite his goal to to give us uh, advice, he has. Uh, He's he's blocked me on Twitter now, so we can't have that conversation, unfortunately. <laughs> it's like these guys are so predictable. Um, I I'm loving the comments. Of course, folks can see the comments, too. Um, and so that's really sweet. I don't know, Sandy, if you think it's time to just open it up um, based on this, based on anything you got on your chest, any questions you have. You don't even have to ask a question. Um, I am drinking Blue Royale, which is a, a local Quebec gin. So there you go. Um, so Sandy, how do you want to do this? Let's open it up. If you have a question, you, I think, mm, let's see what we can do. Should we do hands? Yeah, let's do hands. So that way we can like avoid this uh, zoom bombing situation. Yeah, I was, 
I'm watching the Toronto Star go downhill. Like the publication is really a rag now. It's really shitty. Mm-hmm. And uh, now like it's been buzzing on Twitter that column about are people working from home stealing time from their employers? <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> I'm outraged. Like fuck the Atkinson principles and all that shit. Like, and the star has been absolutely horrible to autistic people and transgender people and all kinds of marginalized groups. Anyone who thinks the Toronto Star is even the slightest bit left is naive at this point. Yeah, and the, the Atkinson principles for folks that don't know. So the, the Toronto Star uh, was founded by uh, and the, family, the family Atkinson. Uh, and the idea was that the newspaper was actually going to be in the service of social justice. Um, And so whenever folks uh, talk about the Atkinson principles, they're talking about what the mandate of the newspaper has been since the founding of the Toronto Star. Um, And so it is the case that it's like, yeah, it just drifts pretty far away from those principles. And it's very hard to see how social justice is woven into a lot of the commentary. I think that the star really falls back on their investigations because the investigations are still where really good journalism is happening. Uh, but <laughs> then we get comment like this. Then we get articles um, that o- over um, pay pay too much attention to um, like barbecue guy or whatever. And the, the principles seem like they've been completely forgotten. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, I remember when the uh, Toronto star, I mean, they've done this a, a few times. They've used their uh, board editorial to put forth some really gross, Uh, positions against people who don't have any power in society. And one of those moments was, again, after Pride, where, uh, you know, uh, BLM had uh, demanded that Pride uh, change some of their practices so that uh, those of us who were part of the community who needed to, uh, um, in order to feel safe participating and to participate at all, um, could have, uh, could, could do so um, to, to, for pride to change some of these policies that they'd been refusing to change for years. And they didn't, they didn't mention any of that stuff, which, you know, as a newspaper, you have a responsibility to not just follow the nonsense, um, that, you know, uh, folks on the right might be parroting about an organization. They have a responsibility to understand the whole picture. And I mean, they would claim that they did that. And they said, um, you know, uh, for people who, don't know at that time those of us in BLM uh, were being spit on on the street we were being pushed on the street we had to stop taking the TTC because of the violence that we were experiencing because we were just so visible and then the Toronto Star goes out and puts out this (laughs) op-ed saying basically fuck you it was like God, like, really, you given the principles um, that apparently are supposed to um, guide this paper how could you it's just uh really surprising yeah Yeah, it's 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 sad but uh you know luckily for us there are um some really great people who are at the star um uh who are writing uh uh in different capacities whether that's like say jim rankin or wendy gillis Uh, there's a few really really great reporters there angeline francis yeah angeline francis yeah there's um sherry pradikar sarah motahegeda right so there's a few really great folks and then also you know uh canada has a um you know a growing 
uh, sector of independent media that's uh, really great that we can also rely on. Totally. Oh, yeah. And fuck Rosie DeMano. Uh, Kathleen. Hey, how's it going? Um, I took a little break from studying to join in on this. And I was so I've been thinking a lot about students that are uh, in university and uh, just with the pandemic, like what their futures are changing to look like. Um, and the fact that the pandemic has brought um, has, has allowed so many people to stop and realize like what we're doing to our planet, to other people, um, to each other. And like, you know, maybe we can change how we're living to, um, yeah, just to stop the downward spiral or whatever. So like for me, obviously working and contributing and participating in capitalism is going to continue to perpetuate this like self-destruction of, of the of everybody so like how like how like I'm I'm in school but I'm not a like a young university student so I look around I feel you yeah (laughs) but but I'm not too worried because I'm like I know I can I've I know how to support myself but like folks that are just graduating say they're like 20 something and they all of a sudden like have no options and also like maybe they're aware that like they don't want to do these things that they thought they were going to grow up and do anymore mm-hmm. like and they're graduating now what would you say to them uh, well if they're if they're in school right now <laughs> i'm not sure about graduating now but if they're in school right now one thing that i would strongly recommend is to start a uh, free tuition campaign immediately <laughs> Like, if I weren't so busy, I would be on a fucking rampage right now, especially in the midst of a pandemic, especially right now at an economic um, crisis point. Like, gosh, I would be raising hell about tuition and about student loans. And that may seem not directly connected, but it is. It's like if you are graduating and you feel stuck because you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's like, um, perhaps you feel like you have to because you've got all this debt all of a sudden that you have to pay off. And um, even though you may have realized that you don't want to do what you set out to do um, or that there's not even any options, you still have to try to get something uh, in your field or that you can get, which is just such a constraint that we shouldn't have generally and certainly shouldn't have in this type of an economy. It's pretty fucked up. Um, and I am so sad, I'm so sad that I haven't seen those types of campaigns be really forefront, really worldwide. They should be super loud worldwide. Um, and we haven't been seeing that. And that makes me kind of sad. Uh, you know, I, (laughs) my, my school, uh, just celebrated, um, uh, international students being able to pay domestic tuition, but only in very specific circumstances. So if you're basically in your fifth year of your PhD, which is like, which is like basically no one. And people are like, yeah. And I'm like, that is not a success. It's barely a policy change. Like the school didn't do anything. And, you know, uh, at, at my school also, we had a tuition fee increase this year, which also seems outrageous. And, Um, The school, you know, there was a campaign which looked like a few petitions, which 
you know, my head, want, I wanted to explode with, you know, there could be so much more uh, than just a petition. And afterwards, the school responded by being like, cool, we'll give every student, every single student will get a $1,000 scholarship, which is like, people were like, yeah. And it's like, no, no. Okay, great. We have a $1,000 scholarship at, you know, uh, I'm at UCLA. So it's like, on a $60,000, well, for domestic students, it's like $45,000. Uh, and for someone like me, it's $56,000 tuition fee bill. And then you know why they give you a fucking scholarship instead of actually just reducing the fees by $1,000? Because next year, when they increase the fees again, they can re- increase it on uh, the amount, on the full amount that they were, we would have had to pay this year, which is just, I don't know. It just makes me sad. Yeah, I think, though, like the, the the reality about this moment in time is that it's really hard for everybody. And I feel like for university and college students, it's actually like a really cool time to be in school. I mean, everything sucks and everything sucks everywhere. I think that the people that have it worse, you know, they're in long term care or their parents with like three year olds. <laughs> like that would be the worst age to have right now. <laughs> Um, but university students, I mean, obviously there's a lot of struggles that go in with this and you're paying tons of tuition fees for very low quality education right now. And your professors are all probably also losing their minds, but it's also like now is the time where radical demands actually have the potential, right? So it's like, are you having reading groups and studying revolutionary literature? And are you discussing and debating and, and, and engaging with each other, however you can right now in a safe way? Um, Because the world that we're going to go into when this pandemic is over will be shaped by us and not just us, but like the thing that I am most excited by, like is youth movements have been the most powerful in the last couple of years, right? You look at the climate justice movement, which has been revolutionized in Canada by young people. And, um, and then you see that everywhere, right? High school students walking out of class demanding changes to their curriculum or whatever. And I think that that's an indication that we have an old power system and it's not just old people, right? I mean, it's like an old power structure that has a lot of shitty people in it of all ages. And it knows that it potentially can crumble as a result of this pandemic. And so now is really the time I think that we can scare politicians the most and start to make those kinds of radical demands. You know, look at how the world changed after moments like the moment that we're living in right now. And it's really easy to get bogged down by the you know, a million reasons why you'd get bogged down right now that are completely legitimate. And Maddie, I see your question. Actually, I want to just mention Maddie's question before we go to the next hands. Um, But the reality is, is that this is the time of change. This is the time of revolutionary thought and revolutionary action. And you have to look at what are those revolutionary movements. So climate has kind of like, you know, stopped, paused, taken a moment after some really incredible action throughout 2019. But what has happened in the last six months, there's been in this incredible, like, resurgence of activism, occupations and movement building from Black Lives Matter and from land defenders. And so these two, like, groups of of kinds of activists and activism spread all across the country. That is... That is where things are today and where things are right now. And so, you know, for young people looking at an uncertain future, I mean, it's not much better as an older person looking at an uncertain future, right? You're like, oh my God, like, will I ever see my parents again? (laughs) Like, we're all asking the same questions, right? Or will I have a job in two years? Because so many of us are precariously employed. 
But um, I really hope that young people, people in university, college, whether or not they're young, don't feel like things are like so hopeless because we can't see the future. I'm one of these people, I mean, Sandy, I'm not sure about you, but I've never had like a two-year plan or a five-year plan or a 10-year plan. So I'm totally good with like my plans being thrown out the window because it's just like, whoa. And so I can imagine that for folks that have a 10-year plan or a five-year plan, they're like, oh my God, I'm not on track. But, you know, this is a global this is a global restructuring moment. And I want us to feel like there is a lot of hope in what is to come, even if what is right now is really shitty and not hopeful and, and, and difficult. And so I'll just end with reading Maddie's question and Sandy uh, throwing this to you. So what advice do you have when you really want to make a difference, but you're bogged down with life? Maddie's default is angry emails to politicians. And so it, it often <laughs> feels futile. But you know, as I often say, Catharsis is not praxis, right? Feeling good about something isn't a political orientation and political act. However, it is really important. So find those things that you can do, like yelling at a politician or being angry on Twitter that makes you feel good and that that helps to also bring you closer to that political analysis or change or whatever struggle that you're that you're trying to achieve, because the two together are actually quite a potent combination. Yeah, being bogged down by life. Oof, that that sucks. Um, here's what I hear in that question. Uh, what I'm hearing is like there's a there's a lack of time, basically, to do all the things that we are responsible for doing, in addition to all the things that we really want to do. Perhaps we're passionate about them, or just we we know that we really need to work on these issues. And uh, to me, I think um, what I learned at some point, much much earlier uh, in my political awakening was that we have to be able to decide what in our life we're willing to let suffer um, if we're going to um, dedicate ourselves uh, to taking action. And so, you know, thinking back to say 2016, um, when uh, BLM did Tent City, I had just gotten a new job. I had just got a new job. And we were like, okay, we're going to, we're going to start a tent city. And I was like, okay. Um, uh, I actually, which might surprise people was on the losing side of that argument. And I'm so glad I was like, I I didn't think it was the right time (laughs) to do a tent city, but I lost that argument. And I'm so glad that I did. Um, which is why it's really important to be committed to arguing with, with folks who you're organizing with. Um, but I was like, okay, so I'm committed to this campaign. I just got a new job. Uh, they're not letting me take time off for this. Do I not do tent city and just, uh, you know, rely on everybody that I work with to, to figure it out and just like support from the sidelines? Or am I willing to let whatever I am, you know, responsible for at work suffer. And the answer was that I was willing to let work suffer. (laughs) It's just like, you know, that was just a decision that I had to make, you know, like, was I willing to, I was also in school at that time, because I'm just one of these people who like to do a 1000 things at the same time. Was I willing to let school suffer? Absolutely. Like this year, this year, you know, um, I had no plan to do as much as I was doing with BLM this year, or much as I am doing BLM this year. Um, You know, I was supposed to be on a little bit of a break because I'm in in law school. Well, law school is just not as important 
as uh, turning the tide on a cultural understanding of what the police are is. And that was just a decision that we I had to make. Like our time and the economy of our time, uh, you know, we it's kind of like a budget. Like you have to budget time in your life and you um, you know, we have to make decisions about what we're willing to let suffer. And now I understand that for some people that's more possible than others. So I'm not saying, you know, um, endanger your ability to live and, and, you know, get out there and throw, throw, through all your responsibilities aside. But I am saying, you know, um, we can make decisions about, uh, what is, what we want to prioritize in our lives. And, you know, um, as much as you can do those things, like really, really think about it. Like, you know, if, if I get a, if I fail a class this year in the grand scheme of things for me personally, the, the calculus is, is simple. It doesn't really matter because I'm not really trying to be a practicing lawyer. So it doesn't really matter. (laughs) (laughs) It's fine, but that may not be your calculus. If your calculus is, I am trying to be a practicing lawyer because I do want to get to the Supreme court and change this particular thing. Then maybe that's, it's a different calculus for you. Um, but I think we do need to be better at refusing what society tells us we must do. Be the best student. Be the best worker. Be the best whatever, blah, 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 blah. And um, decide for ourselves uh, what is the priority in our lives. Yeah, you can get into grad school with like C's. You just have to find the supervisor that will understand that your C's were the result of organizing intensity <laughs> and those supervisors exist <laughs> it's true. Although the, if you're in physics it's a bit harder but there are some cool physics profs out there too so you know engineering uh, i mean sometimes with engineering you just got to set it aside and uh and lie to your parents and lie to your parents <laughs> lie to your parents <laughs> okay yeah hi uh so i'm i'm from ottawa i go to the university of ottawa abrar elmi uh and like um, yeah, school sucks. Uh, Ottawa sucks. Uh, Jacques Fremont sucks. The truly horrible guy makes almost $400,000 a year. Just, just disgusting and despicable. Um, and so like, we just had like the U Ottawa student union just had like a kind of like a town hall of sorts, completely not associated with the actual university because they don't listen and they don't care. Um, but uh, basically what happened recently, and just to give you a little bit of background, is that they had an advisory committee for like racism because you know now the university cares. And they had a bunch of students and, and black students particularly and like the equity um, commissioner of UOSU and like all that on. And then they just dissolved it without telling anyone. And they made a new one that's called an action committee. And, and they're like giving like nomination forms specifically to people who they think will not challenge them. Oh yeah, very much. And so, one action that the U Ottawa, and if anyone from U Ottawa is listening to it, is that we're not going to participate in this action committee. If if this, if you, I don't know, I, I totally understand that in good faith, people think that this will make any change. It will not. They don't want to listen. They they want to keep it secret. They've had people sign things and not say things. Their like human rights commissioner is employed by the university. Jacques. Clément is their boss. How does that ever, that doesn't make sense at all. So like, clearly this is all just a hoax. And it's just really frustrating because like, you know, we go to this town hall and they have like therapy dogs that we can pet, but they just like yeah, have us be like- therapy dog thing, I hate it so much. Well, I mean- <laughs> It's so not, insulting. <laughs> not to mention you know, Ottawa's horrible mental health 
you know, services and how they're always in the news for, you know, unfortunately people taking their lives uh, because Yorua doesn't invest in that. They invest in uh, therapy dogs and I don't know what else do they, I, I clicked and they won't show us the budget. They're very sketchy. They have like their, you know, campus security, like handcuffing black students just for like living. They have private contracts with Garda that no one can see and they can do anything they want. So this is just me ranting about how frustrating I am at you, Ottawa, but there is action taking place soon, soon. Stay tuned at the U Ottawa Student Union is doing, we're going to be doing in-person action as well as online action. I, I'm, I got your book, so I'm going to read it, Nora, because I'm really frustrated. And just you, uh, Ottawa in general, the city council sucks as well. So that's another thing. We just had uh, a meeting with the Ottawa uh, Police Services Board. Uh, I don't know if you heard it about it. Almost 100 people spoke. It went over two days. Uh, well, one day was just for people speaking and then the other was their decision. Uh, they basically just heard us say that the police are horrible and shitty and that we have a housing crisis that City Hall has declared themselves. And yet, yeah, no, they can't reallocate any funds. The police need more money, 13.2 million more on top of uh, 362 million. It's, ri it's ridiculous, obviously, but uh, yeah, the, they don't care. Uh, right at the beginning, uh, City Councilor Diane Deans, you suck. She said that she already made her choice and then she made us say all that stuff. And constantly she's like, no, we hear you, we're listening. She silenced sexual assault uh, survivors from telling their stories. They silenced someone, like literally said, we're not gonna listen to you, which is like wild from a city councilor. That's, it's like recorded live. Um, that wasn't actually like really reported in the news. They, they took Diane Dean's like talking points that she's listening, even though listening is actually something you do actively, clearly. Mm -hmm. Anyways, sorry, I'm so upset right now. And this is, this is the platform. I guess my question, this isn't, I guess I didn't ask a question, but my question is, uh, you know, it's really hard to keep going when like the right channels are, they're, they're, they're fake. And like, yes, like they're protesting on the streets. And, you know, I was, I was there outside of the auto police services when they arrested protesters um, on Lori and Nicholas, which is obviously ridiculous, but it's just like, become very hard and difficult and I, there was a lot of momentum, I think, in the summer, you know, even within the students against like the tuition increases, which they do every year. And then it kind of just, you know, it just, it was gone. It, and it, it is gone. And a lot of people care and they're interested, but then school started again, people had jobs and, and things and they just were just like, yeah, I support it, but I, I'm not, I, I can't do anything. So that's my question. How do, how do you keep it going? Yeah. Uh, can I ask a question to you? Is, is Sean Menard good on all of this? He's a city councilor in Ottawa. Yeah, he's actually pretty cool. Yeah. But I mean, they are, at the end of the day, they are city councilors and, you know, politicians will always disappoint. Yeah. But he's pretty cool. I, the only reason why I asked him, and then I'll, uh, I'm sure Sandy's got something to say and I'll, I'll come back again after, but, you know, you want to talk about the long game. Like, I know Sean, Sandy knows Sean from the student movement. Right. He was elected at, at, at uh, Carleton and he was the president of the student union while um, I was elected at Ryerson. And so to see to see someone who seems to still be actually pretty good is like that, I actually think is is awesome, even even if they're a city councilor, even if they're a politician and all of the, the problems that come with it, which I totally agree and appreciate um, is a bit a difficult thing um, to say. Then someone's like 100 percent cool. <laughs> Oh, man, um, how to keep going. I mean, one of the things that I think is really important is that we should we should recognize that any sort of campaign, 
any sort of, uh, you know, initiative does have like these cycles that swell and dip and swell and dip. And I think that that we shouldn't necessarily see that as a bad thing. You know, I got that question a lot this summer um, when I was being interviewed about uh, the uprisings, the BLM uprisings. People would ask, you know, do you think it's going to last or you think this is like a flavor of the week? And it's like, come on. like, You know, people, things that become like cultural phenomena, like they they rise and they fall in what media is interested in reporting on or focusing on. But what's important is that when when we are at those swell moments that we use them to try to change culture as much as possible and to change as much as possible that can't be unchanged. And so, you know, uh, in the episode that Nora and I did say saying that we've already won like the campaign to defund the police in some ways, what we were getting at there was that, yeah, you know, we're already at the denouement moment, um, but we did so much during that the upswell uh, period that it is no longer a weird thing to question the police or have a discussion about defunding the police at all. Whereas at one point it would get you um, kicked off of a CBC uh, interview. For example. Now, for example. Not not pulling out from any real life examples. Just a hypothetical here, folks. Um, but now it's like it's an obvious discussion that people want to have. The important piece is to use those swells to shift power in whatever way that we can. We have to take breaks. That's important. We can't go on forever and ever, but we need to use the moments as they come as effectively as possible. And, you know, uh, some of those struggles that are happening in Ottawa, I wanted to also shout out uh, the young folks who are currently camped out uh, in Hamilton because, you know, they're dealing with some of the very same things that folks in Ottawa were dealing with. The Ottawa police uh, arrested everybody who is uh, camping out in Hamilton right now. Um, they've been managing to go strong uh, since Monday um, at an encampment to defund the Hamilton Police Service and also to put funding towards um, housing in the city um, because Hamilton has one of the worst housing crises in Canada. Um, and uh, the, they have been using their police to harass um, the people who are houseless who've set up encampments. And so um, they've created uh, this beautiful action, this beautiful tent city action that you can uh, follow on Twitter at DefundHPS. And, you know, I mentioned that to also say we can inspire one another. And I think it's so important to be inspired by one another, to pay attention to what, what other folks are doing, to to get creative and excited about the possibilities for resistance. Yeah, I have a really funny way of thinking about um, how the waves of action slowly gather strength. I always think of that gambling machine of like pennies, where you drop a penny in, you draw, and 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 there, there's like a row of a tray of pennies, and then you finally drop enough pennies in, and then like you win by a bunch of them falling off that tray. I don't know if I'm describing it right. Like I've never played this game in my life, but it's like all we're doing, we're dropping pennies all the time. Every action, we're dropping pennies, and you have no idea because it's gambling when that drop will happen. When they actually get enough pennies to be pushed off that cliff for you to actually win. I don't even know how much you win in a machine like that. Probably like fifty cents is a huge deal. <laughs> but um but that's what this is right is we're always we're always adding to 
our previous work or work that has been previously done. And, you know, like Sandy and I were both active in um, the 2000s in the student movement. Like you want to talk about the worst time to be a student activist? It was the it was the mid 2000s because like. (laughs) The left was gone. There was no radical action. The, the, the land reclamation at Caledonia in 2006, so Landback Lane right now, 1492 Landback Lane, is, is in the same area of southern Ontario, right? But in 2006, there was a land reclamation, again, in, in a similar location. And that was like the biggest thing happening because I remember seeing this as like, oh my God, they took over like development. They took over houses being built on Southern Ontario farmland. And that's where I grew up, right? So I was like, I have dreamed my whole life of seeing these developments get stopped in their tracks. I have dreamed my whole life of seeing uh, what they had done was they set up their office and headquarters in the show house, right? In the house that people go in and be like, oh, this is so amazing. I'm going to pay $500,000 for rotten windows in five years, right? Because that's how that's how those houses are built. Like they're all, they're all total shit. If you ever work for College Pro, you know that half your job is just covering up rotten windows from these houses because they're rotten before people can afford to pay for windows because they just paid for, you know, the new house. And, and it was like, for me, it was that moment where I was like, okay, radical action is possible and it's happening and this is amazing. And at the same time, the biggest rallies that were happening, this is so funny to me in retrospect, and actually at the time it was very funny too, was um, rallies uh, against parliament being prorogued, right? Like rallies being like, what? Stephen Harper shut down parliament rather than taking criticism. And the criticism was over... Uh, the Iraq, uh, Afghanistan war story around uh, detainee transportation. So Canada was was like handing over Afghan detainees where they were experiencing torture. Fun fact, fun being the opposite of fun. Uh, the 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 major general. I'm not sure if there's any army folks on the line. You can laugh at me for not knowing any of these terms. But the guy who was in charge of uh, the armed forces at that time um, has just been appointed to do what? Give away our vaccines and coordinate our vaccine distribution. So, you know, it's like, it's always, you know, two step forwards, one step back, two step forwards, one step back. And as Sandy said, you have to take time off. You have to pace yourself. Um, but I think actually this pandemic is a really good example of like how to survive a moment of really desperate feeling. When is this going to end? When is this going to end? And we should settle into that feeling of uncertainty and when is this going to end and learn from it as activists, knowing that we have to we have to fight in the face of uncertainty. We have to fight in the face of a pandemic that might injure us and might kill us, might kill people that we love, right? That's very, very scary. Um, we have to fight in the face of a very organized far right that absolutely wants this thing to spread as far as possible. And still there's radical action possible. So just because um, the, the the action from the summer has taken a bit of a cooling off in the winter, it's always important to remember uh, pretty much everywhere in Canada, action cools off in the winter, <laughs> partly because <laughs> of the temperature. Um, and that's normal. That's fine because people really do have a need to be like, oh my God, I'm not getting out from under my wool jacket. Like, no, I'm just going to lie here instead. Um, 
And then under that condition, when things are quiet and when things are a bit more calm, where do we channel our action? That might be when you do some writing. That might be where you actually connect with people. That might be where you have online meetings uh, or, or gatherings or social events where you can actually become friends and, and, and build relationships with one another rather than seeing those confrontations as, as being what they have to happen all the time because you cannot have confrontation all the time. You will burn out. So just finding those other things in the middle, I think is really, really important. Hey, um, if this question is kind of niche, so it doesn't, if it doesn't really help anyone, then we can just skip it. But um, I was just wondering if you guys had any thoughts or words about um, kind of white conservative evangelicalism and their role in white supremacy. Um, I grew up Christian, like white conservative Christian kind of thing, and definitely been removed from that a lot and still consider myself a Christian. But I just saw a lot of... Um, language used like the word Marxist being used in Christian circles against progressive people much longer than it was used in the far right. And so in my mind, I see it as an important area to be really careful of. So I was wondering if you guys had any thoughts on that or. Nora, why don't you start? Oh, I'm the resident uh, Christian expert. That's not yeah, even I don't, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up Pentecostal for those who don't know. <laughs> Go on ahead. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that the Christian right, um, they play a very important role in creating community, uh, which people lack in Canada. And when you are searching for something, with you're searching for meaning for life, you're searching for a way to um, do worship with other people, these, com these community organizations are really important, right? Like churches can provide so much to you and they do provide a lot to people. Where that gets obviously like dangerous is when the message is um, trying to maintain social policy that is bad in some way. And so, you know, one of the things that I wrote about in my book is that the, the evangelical right in Canada has been really, really important in creating leadership, which we do not have any version of uh, on the left at all. And so that means that, you know, you can learn public speaking, you can learn uh, how to network, you, you can go from church to church and, and, and do events and, and, and become a, a, a trained leader to talk about some sort of political issue related in some way to the worldview of, the, of your church. Um, and that creates a really powerful driving force to put people into politics, right? How many conservative MPs got their start in politics in their church, which is really interesting, right? Because I grew up in the church. I mean, I worked for the freaking Hamilton Diocese, the Catholic Church uh, of uh, Hamilton and the whole region that it serves. And, um, and so I saw very, very clearly growing up in the church, um, like the need that people have for communion, right? And in the Catholic church, we call it, talk about communion, but when, when I say communion, I mean like the need for us to get together and be together. And, you know, I, there was always this fight, um, like, why do we have to go to church every week? This sucks. Right. And my father would always say to us, you know, you go to church, not because you have to, you have to be there, but because the people around you who need to be with other people need you there and your presence and their presence build something to say that we are in whatever they're struggling with together. And I can never argue against that because it's so true. Right. And so then when I became an organist, I mean, it was weird. Cause I mean, I was like totally an atheist. My parents for all their religion, my mom's from the United church for all my parents growing up in the, in religion, my father's like literally studied to be a priest. They were very not, um, uh, they're not right-wing people. Like they, they understood like the, the gospel of Jesus as being 
left-wing doctrine, which is also like how conservatism is just so bananas to me, right? It's like, um, I saw that PragerU put out a video about Jesus's teachings. You saw that? Um, so it said something like, uh, Jesus was helping uh, this poor man named Abe um, by linking him with a wealthy investor. And now Abe is selling whatever food on the side of the road. What? It's like, what the fuck gospel is that from? <laughs> right? But But the problem is that it's linked to this idea that your faith in God brings you prosperity, right? Brings you wealth, brings you success, and that you pray to God and you get that success. Um, and that's something that exists, I think, across all religions to an extent. I mean, the prosperity gospel, which is something that's known on the, on the, on the Christian, in the Christian evangelical world, that links your economic prosperity to God, right? And so all of a sudden, if you get more money because taxes are lowered, it's your faith in God that is bringing you in more money. And so that's a really dangerous way to understand how we exist within the world. And then the Marxism piece comes in just because Marxists were famously against religion, period, right? Like Marxism came about in a world that was deeply religious and people were saying religion is destructive. We are against religion. I'm talking like the 1900s, right? I think that since then, there's been so many excellent think thinkers and, and, and ways to bring Marxism and religion together that I don't think that it's contradictory, really. I think that there's a lot of really good Christian left-wing writing and perspectives. And because the Bible is so left-wing in itself, I mean, parts of it, obviously there's some parts that are less good. Um, but that, 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 that there is a way to be a left-wing person and to be Christian, but, but politicians need the, the right, the Christian right to, to give them the power that they have. And you can see that through Stephen Harper. You can see that through, you know, someone like Brad Trost, uh, who was, um, the MP for Saskatoon, Rosetown, Bigar in, uh, Saskatoon and the farming communities to the north of the city. And he like was able to get a, um, a polling station in the church on Easter. <laughs> and it's like, obviously the guy won, right? So these kinds of connections are really difficult. And I think that we have to think about why they're so popular. And, and it really goes back to community because we've lost mutual aid organizations. Well, mutual aid organizations have often been rooted, uh, rooted in religion. Um, uh, but there has been also like, you know, Shriners or Rotary or all these kinds of Lions Club, Optimists, all these kinds of social clubs that also bring people together and give them community that we just don't have. And so for someone who may have had a traumatic experience in their life, may have not had a traumatic experience in life, just wants to know the meaning of life, wants to have other ways to meet people. Like it's so hard to meet people these days. Religion is really, really, really um, attractive. Um, and so uh, I think that the left has to figure out how we interface with religious communities in a way that like helps to help left-wing people within those communities fight back around the, the right-wing narratives that aren't at all inherent in, in religious scripture. The other thing is that, um, and yeah, Nora is totally the expert on Christianity <laughs> around here. It is 100% on me. <laughs> um, the other thing is uh, that I think is really important is that the, 
the conservative right spent a lot of time doing what I think a lot of us on the left are nervous to do, which is going into spaces where they weren't sure they were going to be welcomed and organizing the fuck out of them. Like there was a time actually in the sixties where, you know, if you were involved in a religious, in a Christian church, then you were more likely to be left actually. And we stopped organizing in churches the left just generally, you know, and uh, the conservatives didn't, you know, they, they turned that sentiment around. And I remember doing organizing work on campus uh, where, you know, people, you know, we would, we, we had at the University of Toronto Students Union, we had like over 400 clubs that we would, you know, try to do organizing with. So if we were, if we were working on like a tuition fee campaign or an anti-racism campaign, we would meet with 400 clubs uh, to try to like teach them about an issue or get their endorsement about an issue or whatever. And there would be people who'd be like, oh, let's not meet with the Christian groups because we know they're going to be right wing. And it's like, who? cares like <laughs> there's going to be like a thousand people on this group on this list who are going to be right wing you have to try and we do so often just close off doors using assumptions that we, we we just have about populations of people which i think is so dangerous like we can't just go to people who we know are already where we want them to be if we're, if our goal is to change society then we have to do actually what the conservatives did to make uh christianity synonymous um it's it's not synonymous, but as synonymous as they could probably get it with right wing, right? Like we have to, we have to do the organizing work. We have to go into uncomfortable spaces and make people understand um, why they've been lied to or why the things that they ha- believe are myths. And that means being really fucking uncomfortable. And it means not only going to the United Church, even though, you know, bless the United Church. <laughs> so like, you know, it's it's just so important that we go into these spaces that are uncomfortable and allow ourselves to be challenged. You know, we cannot be afraid of being challenged. If someone's like, well, you're wrong because you can say, well, Martin Regcone, fuck you because this, and then maybe he'll block you. But, you know, at least you know then that you won the argument <laughs> because he just... <laughs> <laughs> can't come back but it's it's like that is just a, a snippy fucking way to say that uh the having the argument is important making the attempt is important and we can shift those things and we can't shift um these um these assumptions that we make about certain uh, uh institutions the best way to organize is to organize in places where people are already organized and um, religious institutions are one of the most organized places in our world you know where else is most organized Um, post-secondary institutions. And right now, post-secondary institutions, where we have spent a lot of time on the left organizing, are next to synonymous with being left. Have the conservative right stopped trying? They 100% have not. They've like got their little fucking Jordan Petersons and whoever the fuck else to try to do whatever it is that they can do, even while they sound absurd. And they can, they can't, they have started to turn the tide in certain places of the academy. And like, let's not, next not kid ourselves. The academy is an elite space. It used to be the elite right, the conservative, but we turned it and it, we can turn anything. We just actually have to be not afraid of being challenged and taking the time to go into a space where we're going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, I just want to um, add that if anyone's interested in seeing emergent left-wing perspectives that are that are tied to religion, Christianity in particular, but actually generally as well, make sure you read Broadview magazine. 
Um, it's the old United Church Observer, but it is, um, it's now more of a magazine on spirituality. And they just did a big feature on um, a trans preacher in an evangelical church and how difficult it was for them. So um, they're really great. Um, if you're into spirituality, Christianity, or any religion, as I say, Broadby Magazine is definitely a place to check out. Um, and before we go to the next two hands, uh, I just wanted to get back to this question. So posting isn't praxis. Um, and then how can we make posting become praxis, asking for a neurodivergent friend? Um, I want to maybe clarify what I said. Posting can be praxis. Shit posting is often not praxis, but good <laughs> shit posting can be praxis. Okay. If you don't know what the word praxis means, I mean, I am, sh I actually don't know if I still know it. I like to use it as a verb, uh, because it sounds like it should be a verb. I'm not even sure if it is. Um, Sandy's done much more theory, um, education, I believe than I have, but, um, but shit posting uh, less so only because it's just so snippy sometimes, uh, but posting in general, yes, of course it can be praxis. Yes. Of course you can change people's minds and, 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 and show political action, show political ideology through posting. Um, but not all posting is. Telling someone to fuck themselves is probably not praxis. And you should still do that. Just don't mix that up with your politics if it's just if you're just doing that because you're having a good time, right? That would be where cathar catharsis, you know, it's cathartic to tell someone to fuck themselves. <laughs> um, you know, I write my my book is actually about this, like that that interplay between the online and the offline world with our with our organizing. Um, and I think that the online world is very important. I mean, obviously, we're all online today. It's made possible from the internet, right? Um, but it is really important for us to be in, in in real life spaces together too, right? That like just as we were talking about with these religious communities. Um, we need one another more than we know sometimes. I mean, I shouldn't say that now, right now, fuck, I'm sure everyone's like, I'll take whatever friend walks in my front door, right? Because of the pandemic. Um, but, uh, we absolutely need one another. And so we have to figure out how to, how to augment our organizing. And if for you, that means organizing is going to be mostly online. That's fine. That's totally fine. We just have to make sure that we're then supporting in, in one way or another, um, people getting together in real life as well.